This is The Good List. I'm Tish Oxenreiter. And in this episode, I'm joined once again by my friend and fellow writer, Seth Haynes, as we continue our multi-episode, as we continue our multi-episode conversation about living sacramentally. So Seth, kick us off with a quick reminder again with what we mean by sacramental living. So sacramental living is all about seeing the world around us as a manifestation of God's goodness. Um, His goodness, his goodness exists in the creation we enjoy, the food we eat, the things we drink, which we are both drinking during this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and the rhythms of our lives, which is something that we've already explored and that you do really well. So, um, yeah. super excited to, to keep talking about this. And we're going to get into it a little more today, especially the rhythms bit. So because all of this embodies the life and idea of sacramentality, we're calling this series a drink with a friend as a reminder. And so Seth, what exactly is it that you are drinking for this episode? So today I am drinking a tea called a gentleman and a scholar by Savoy Tea Company, which is in my vicinity. It's in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And it's really, it's my favorite tea. So as you know, I don't really drink uh, whiskey anymore for a variety of reasons. Um, And this kind of, it's just, it has a hint, enough of a hint of that old whiskey flavor that it's, it's really my go-to. Huh. I wouldn't have thought of a tea that has a whiskey hint. Why would it have that? Is it a particular type of tea? I mean, is it just plain black tea that just is got stuff in it? Yeah, it's a black tea and there's a little bit of like an oaky, apple oaky sort of hint to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's just whatever they put in it, which I, to be honest, I can't tell you. I should probably look that up. Uh, right. But it but it just has that that sort of oaky, apple flavor to it. Caramely. Cool. I don't know. It's really nice. Very cool. I love it. That sounds good. What are you drinking? I am drinking, I am drinking bourbon. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It's, it's been a week for that. And I mean, I'm just going to say the reason for it is because this week, Kyle and I celebrated 18 years of marriage. And so congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. We went out earlier this week. Um, This is kind of a crazy, we live in this just insane neighborhood where a bourbon tasting restaurant just opened up on our street. So literally a three block walk from us is this new place. And so we decided to walk down there for our anniversary. And it is delightful because this is the time of year where here in central Texas, the weather's really great. And so we sat outside on the deck and weren't too hot and not too cold. And we had these drinks called... Kyle said that on the menu, they were called Autumn Delight. I don't even remember what they were called, but all it really <laughs> sounds, I mean, come on. It's, it was actually really good though. Um, our waiter told us we needed to get them. So we said, okay, because we were in that kind of celebratory mood where we just say, okay, to the waiter. Um, and all that's it the, really, yeah. It's a great mood really, to be in. It's a good mood to be in. And all it really is, is uh, bourbon with apple cider and cinnamon. So honestly, that's what it was. But I think the key is it has to be really good cider like it can't be apple juice from the grocery store it needs to be like kind of the good stuff that looks murky um yeah so that's what it is so i've got a couple hits of bourbon with a whole lot of apple cider and then i couldn't find it we don't have cinnamon sticks here Hmm. so um i found pumpkin pie spice though (laughs) so i i sprinkled some pumpkin pie spice in here which has cinnamon and nutmeg in it basically so So it's 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 kind of a, a fall drink it's a fall drink so yeah that's what I'm drinking. And we're recording this on a Friday afternoon. And I don't know, Friday afternoon for me means right after we're done talking, I start the weekend. So, you know. Yeah. Day. And we kind of went with the same flavor profile today. Exactly. Who That's kind of interesting. I know. There you <laughs> go. All right. Well, in this particular episode, we're going to talk about, I mean, it's kind of funny. We're just talking about this. Um, I guess we could say the idea of addiction, but this word is really heavy and it also means stuff that maybe people don't think it means and doesn't mean things people do think it means. And Seth, this is a topic you've explored in great detail, especially in your first book, Coming Clean. So um, I don't know, would you start us off just talking about what addiction is and isn't and why it's near and dear to your heart? Yeah, well, it's near and dear to my heart because I've uh, dabbled around in addiction, so to speak, and several addictions, as it were. Uh, My addiction of choice for a variety of years was bourbon 
in the winter and gin in the summer. I actually drank so hard that I had different seasons. So I would allocate the season after Easter and before my birthday, which is in October, to gin. And then the season after October 25th uh, until Easter was bourbon season. So yeah, I, I drank really hard for a long time and then just kind of came to the place where I realized that um, it was it was really kind of messing with my, my head, messing with my life. It was uh, directing me uh, towards the end of the day in ways that I didn't really like it. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I hung it up. But when I talk about addiction, um, I'm not really talking about alcohol or drugs or sex like the big three. Um, I'm really talking about anything that we use to sort of numb us to the pains of life, if that makes sense, the anxieties of life. So we're in a really anxious season as we're recording this podcast. And, you know, if there's one thing that I hear over and over again in this season, it's, you know, uh, the, the COVID is really terrible or the election is, is throwing me into a tailspin or race relations are throwing me into a tailspin. And I find at the end of uh, the night that I can't not. And then here comes the fill in the blank. For some people, it's drink. For some people, it's binge watch Netflix. For some people, um, it's eat, 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 eat. Uh, for some people, it's binge shopping. I mean, it can be any number of things. And when you talk uh, to folks in these circles like I do, it all comes back to one thing, which is I just want to escape the anxiety that's all around me in the world, the chaos that's around me in the world. Mm-hmm. And when this episode goes out, it's going to be the start of the holidays. You know, this is like in the thick, this is early December when people are feeling that kind of pressure, I would say, to feel a certain way or to make things a certain way. In your experience, is there like a correlation with the holidays and these forms of addiction? Well, for me, everything was kind of a party. That's what got me in trouble. I was raised in Louisiana and Louisiana, everything is an excuse for a party. Uh, you know, you have all these great feasts and all these great uh, holidays and all these great, um, you know, celebrations. There's even a whole season where you have festivals, it's festival season, you know, and, and so everything's a celebration. So for me, I would, you know, when I was in the thick of my own uh, drinking problem, I was always looking for a reason to celebrate. I was turning everything into a celebration and particularly Mm -hmm. in the holidays, it's super easy to do that. There's always a reason to celebrate during the holidays. And so if you're not careful and you have already these baked in addictions, um, then when the anxiety of the holiday comes, yeah, man, just ramp it up, you know, drink a little bit more. Or if you are addicted to shopping, which is a real thing when the holiday comes and you have to find the perfect gift or gifts for everyone, you can just shop, 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 shop. And it's socially acceptable. So I find that that the holiday season actually is is difficult because it provides you socially acceptable cover to do the things um, that are addictions, either, you know, the big addictions or the smaller ones. And I find, too, that because these particular holidays, I mean, we're mostly talking about Christmas and, you know, Advent in particular right now, but um, because they are right before the flip of the calendar where people have this mindset of new year, new me, that perhaps there's even an excuse of just like, I'm going to just not care for the next month. And then I'm going to start caring January 1st. Um, and I, I can think of so many cases of that when it's possible, like the shopping, I'm going to deal with the credit card bill after the holidays. I just want this year to be great, especially in a year like 2020 when everything's been kind of hard. Um, and so, you know, when it comes to the the baked goods everywhere for those who struggle with eating for, yeah, the alcohol, I would imagine. And even the um, just the tendency to want to escape with, um, I don't know, just good things because we want to make the holidays good when they're otherwise not good. You know, perhaps we're not getting to travel like we want. And so we're just going to do nothing but watch Netflix for two weeks or something. I yeah. don't know. To me, it just feels like a good a good excuse for a lot of that. And I'm not putting anyone under the bus. I understand the tendency. Yeah. And and that is really one of the temptations really is to say, well, I'll just muscle through this season and keep doing what I'm doing. And then in January, um, we'll we'll I'll go ahead and turn over the uh, the new leaf. But we all know how long those New Year's resolutions last. And so <laughs> that you know, a week, maybe two. Um, yeah. so when you put off your addictions until, you know, 
the the turn of the calendar. You might make good on it for uh, a couple of weeks, but the more you train your brain to sort of give in uh, to the addiction, give in to that sort of compulsion, it's probably be a better probably a better word is compulsion. Mm-hmm. Um, the more you train yourself to sort of give in to those compulsions, the harder it's going to be to break out of them in the new year. Everything we do, every action we take. Um, every drink we drink, everything we watch, everything we say, uh, it just creates habit loops for us. Um, mm-hmm. and those habit loops are really hard to break. They form us. Mm. That's really interesting. I'm working with, um, a group of high schoolers this year at my school. We're doing a leadership class and the, the theme for this first semester is habit formation. And honestly, the, 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 thing that keeps coming back is screen addiction for them. And I know Mm -hmm. we're going to do a future episode where we're just going to talk about screens and social media in particular, but um, I see this really playing into um, the younger generation, but so many of us too adults are just compulsive um, screen refreshers and, you know, it's, and it's not even because we want it. I I don't know anybody who wants to constantly refresh Twitter, but it's like, we can't, Oh, because that habit loop is so instinctive. We have to yeah. constantly know what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And as we're recording this, I am constantly refreshing my screen right now. I mean, I'm checking vote counts every hour, <laughs> you know, as yeah. if the vote count is going to magically swing one way or another within an hour. Um, and I'm constantly mm-hmm. refreshing Twitter to see, you know, who said what about, uh, you know, what's going to happen in the political sphere and, um, yep. You know, maybe by the time we get to Advent, this will all be a uh, pleasant history. Um, mm-hmm. But I have noticed for me, you know, just constantly tuning into the screen or constantly watching the news as if somehow the news is going to tell me something new, like than it did 30 minutes ago. Um, right. It just, man, it just sucks you in. You don't even realize it until you sort of step back and say, oh, I'm using this for something. So if. If we talk about this in the context of sacramentality, you know, that's the theme of this conversation series. And if we talk about a sacrament being an outward sign of an inward grace, what to use the correlation between living sacramentally and dealing with addiction? Yeah, so I talk about this a little bit um, in the book of Waking Up, the second book uh, that I wrote. And if you look at the spiritual exercises of uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola and you look at his foundation and his principle, he says that our primary duty, our chief aim is to love, serve, and reverence God and to recognize that everything that has been created, everything that's created, the whiskey in your cup, the tea in my cup, uh, the nature around us has been created to draw us deeper into loving and serving and reverencing God, right? Which can be as simple as, oh man, this tea is so great. Thank you for the tea and the talent that blended it. So awesome, mm-hmm. you know, um, and and just drawing us back into the thankfulness and the gratefulness of, of being alive, being in the place, experiencing the grace of God in the land of the living. And then he goes a step further and he says, anything that doesn't lead you to better love, serve and reverence God, get rid of it, cut it off. Mm-hmm. This is the principle and foundation for his spiritual formation work um, that now spiritual directors mine included, use, you know, and, um, and so for me, addiction really is about like, let's notice the things that were not created bad. They weren't Mm -hmm. created as like negative things, but we're somehow misusing them. We're attaching to them instead of to God. We're not letting those things draw us through to love, serve and reverence God. And then let's get rid of them. But if Mm -hmm. we can, let's order them under, you know, the, the proper foundation of loving and serving and reverencing God. But if we can't, like, let's get rid of them. Uh, that's mm-hmm. why people with a sacramental view who struggle with alcohol say, you know what? Alcohol doesn't help me love, serve, and reverence God. And so I'm I'm done with it or I'm done with it for a season. That's interesting. What I think of, what my brain goes to is yesterday in my high school English class, you know, we're going through Inferno and we're going through the circles of hell and the kids are talking about, you know, why are they in the order that they're in? And it was really interesting to me how Dante ordered the first, I think it's like four circles of hell aside from limbo as it's um, lust, gluttony, um, greed, and anger, I believe. And the kids were like, well, like, you know, why, why in that order? <clears throat> why in that order? And ultimately what it comes down to is he placed these, um, you know, as the circles get wide and they go narrower, 
that implies that the wide circles are the ones that are like hugely common that so many people deal with because there's so many people in these circles um, that all they can be boiled down to is misplaced adoration of a good thing. You know, that these are gifts from God. If you consider uh, lust and love, uh, greed is, is hoarding good things, you know, all these things. I don't, I won't get into it, but to me, that's what this echoes completely. Yeah. And I love the fact that you use the phrase misplaced adoration. I mean, that's what it felt like for me. I mean, even in my like sort of journey farther along into the sacramental life, when I stopped drinking and um, I guess this is about four years ago, I started going on the road a lot for business and I started thinking, and I, you know, I hadn't had a drink for three years uh, at the time. And I started thinking, you know, I'm all alone. I could do whatever I want to do. Nobody's ever going to know I'm on the road for four or five days at a stretch. Um, and I started thinking, man, I need something to sort of anchor me. And um, so I, I was in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, <coughs> oddly. Mm-hmm. And I looked up this local uh, church and they had this adoration chapel where you could just go and sit in adoration and you could, you know, be with others who are around you and praying and, and, and really participating and focusing um, their attention on Christ. And, and in that moment, it's the first time I, I really went um, and I was just sitting there thinking like, this is the thing that can hold my attention. This is the thing that can kind of get me through uh, this week is just really focusing on the front hand, my attention on proper adoration versus misplaced adoration. So I started kind of incorporating that into all my road trips. So I love the idea of adoration as a sort of hedge against addiction. That's really cool. And I want to get into that a little bit more when we start getting into rhythms as a um, as a good replacement for addiction. Um, something I've been thinking about if is if the definition of a sacrament officially is an outward sign of an inward grace, then maybe the converse addiction could almost be anything that seems like an inward sign of an outward stronghold. Like this mm-hmm. idea that if I'm addicted to something outwardly, it must be holding on to me in some way. And mm. I think of that related to mine and Kyle's history, you know, mm. neither of us have dealt with um, an addiction to things like food or alcohol or um, kind of the classic addictions. But whenever we returned from living overseas in Turkey, um, this was 10 years ago now, we went through this, I mean, for lack of a better word, a debriefing process where we went away for a week and we worked with counselors who were trained in helping expats repatriate to their home culture. And so we took this like test, this, um, it was almost like this, a test you would take from a psychologist to see how crazy you were, but this was a (laughs) test just to see, you know, it wasn't a test to see sanity or to test sanity, but it was, um, to test your stress levels. And I don't remember what our hard numbers were, but especially Kyle's were off the charts um, chronic stress. And we looked at that and we thought, well, that's kind of weird. I mean, yeah, of course, living in a different culture is stressful, but long story short, what the counselors ended up talking with us about is that we were so stressed. We didn't know we were stressed because we had been living with it for so long and it became our new normal. Like we didn't notice it anymore. And and looking back, I can see it was almost like we were addicted to stress, but not because we liked it. It was because it was all we knew. Yeah. And so I just wonder how many of us are addicted to things we don't even like, but it's just all we know. And so we don't even notice we're addicted. Do you find that to be true? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. find that to be true. And I, in fact, I was talking with a friend um, this week who was saying that this whole you know, situation of 2020 that we've been living through um, that he was quote made for this. And as we started talking about it more and more, uh, what he really was trying to say was I'm addicted to chaos. I've mm-hmm. always been addicted to chaos. 2020 is chaotic. This just feels like home for me. Um, and he's had some of his own struggles this, this year as we all have. And, and he doesn't necessarily like the struggle aspect of it, but for him, he's just saying like, this isn't good for my soul. It's not good for the way I feel. It's not good for my spiritual life. And yet somehow I feel at home in all of this chaos. So yeah, I think addiction to chaos is an absolutely uh, a thing. Um, and I think it sort of drives a lot of workaholism too. You know, this, this addiction yeah. to stress and chaos, like, oh, well, 
you know, there's one place where I know I can always find stress and chaos and it's at my office. So let's go there. Um, right. So, yeah, I think just a, a lot of the, the, <coughs> the sneaky sort of addictions that come up on us um, really can be brought back to things like stress and chaos. Yeah, it almost feels like our culture's default is an addiction to anything novel. And it's almost because we we have um, wiped out the need for boredom. You know, we don't yeah. have any place for it in our lives anymore because we can literally carry in our pockets a computer that is more powerful than what got NASA to the moon in the yep. 60s. You know, it's in our pockets it, yep. when we're waiting in a grocery line. And so we cannot abide by boredom. And so we become addicted, if, if not to screens, just to, like you said, news or chaos or watching train wrecks or any sort of thing that just feels out of the ordinary. It's like we can't get enough of all the while hating ourselves for it, you yeah. know, because I don't know anybody who loves this kind of stuff on paper, but we kind of act like we do if we're looking at our actions. Yeah. And and no matter how much we want to break away from it, I mean, I, I think screens is a, is a great, a great example. Like you can always find excuses to stay uh, connected, to stay plugged in, to stay addicted and, and, you know, for us, for what we do and, uh, you know, as we write, as we uh, market for other things, like, you know, you're almost told that the screen is a, is a necessity that Twitter or Facebook or YouTube or whatever uh, podcasting or whatever is a necessity. Um, But at the end of the day, I think a lot of times we do this stuff just because it's, you know, what society tells us we're supposed to do. And we, we dig in and we do it hoping that, you know, somehow this will scratch a certain niche and, and these things um, start to use us more than we use them. And that's real dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, we just want to escape ordinary because if we live in the ordinary and, you know, I guess by proxy boredom, we're going to have to deal with stuff. Like we're going to have to deal with our inner selves Yes, and and hear those voices that we kind of don't like, you know, the things that probably when you're going through um, detox, of some sort, you're going to hear these voices that are screaming at you. And we don't deal with that very well. We don't like pain in our world anymore. Yeah. It's the, it's the worst. And there's this uh, addiction writer. um, His name is Gabor Mate and he's an amazing writer. He he's written a book called in the realm of hungry ghosts about heroin addicts that he's um, sort of been through treatment with. And one of the things that he uh, says is that, uh, the question for the addict is never why the addiction, but it's why the pain. And he says, all of the things that we do, all of the addictions that we have are really just ways to cover up and numb ourselves to the pain. His addiction, which was super interesting was an addiction to classical music. So that is weird. Okay. So (laughs) he would find himself at the end of a super stressful day, going to this used record store that he had uh, nearby near his office. And he would just peruse the classical shelf until he found this, like the perfect album um, that he didn't have. And, and he would run up hundreds of dollars uh, sometimes a day buying these classical records. And it got so bad that he hid it from his wife. He hid it from his friends. He would like stash records in his office um, so that he wasn't bringing too many home. And and he just kind of woke up one day and said, you know, the record for me uh, looks a whole lot like heroin for my clients. And that's when he started to unpack these myriad ways that we're all addicted to something. That is fascinating. I would have never thought of that being a um, temptation for somebody. Yeah, but I mean, think about it. Like all of these things, and this is why I think it blends so well with sacramental thinking, all of these addictions do something for our brains, right? Mm -hmm. Like when I drink and I release the stress, the body releases dopamine in my head and it says, oh, you got rid of the stress that drink felt good. We need to do that some more. Or when you're lonely and you want to connect and you, you know, go to Twitter and you connect with people virtually uh, uh, times, you know, a thousand times faster than you could have in any other stage of history, the body, the brain releases dopamine and says, Oh, that felt good. Let's do that some more. Let's do that again. Next time you're lonely, do that again. And so for, for Dr. Mate, it was, you know, you're, you're a hunter by nature and he was going out on the hunt and when he was stressed and when he didn't have enough and when he didn't feel, you know, good enough about himself, he would go out on a hunt and then he would Mm -hmm. find the perfect thing and he would slide the card and leaving the record store, his brain would release the dopamine to say, you went on the hunt, you conquered, you found, this feels good. Let's do it again. And you just Mm -hmm. get in these dopamine loops. 
Hey guys, this episode is sponsored by StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you create memorable, customized books full of your loved one's stories you want to make sure are written down. Right now with the holidays upon us and we're doing our best to connect with family and loved ones, it's such a good time to capture that family history and memorable inside stories. StoryWorth wants to help you turn those stories into a beautiful keepsake book that'll last for generations. So here's how it works. Once a week, StoryWorth asks one thought-provoking question to your loved one that's meant to help draw out memories and personal thoughts. After a year, all the answers are then collected, along with any submitted photos, into a beautifully bound published book they send to you for free. Y'all, this is an especially great gift idea right now when we can't be with so many of our loved ones in person, especially those who've lived full lives and have all sorts of stories waiting to be told. We need to know those stories. And you'll be so glad to have them written down. Like the saying goes, a year from now, you'll be thankful you started today. It's always fun to hear stories from my parents, grandparents, and in-laws that unearth experiences that helped shape their lives and to see how they've made an impact on the next generation. Some of the really great questions have been, what's the best job you've ever had? And how did you learn to ride a bicycle? It's lighthearted memories like this, as well as the more serious ones or even ridiculous ones that you can capture through StoryWorth. You'll read the stories you've heard a thousand times, plus probably a story or three for the very first time. So this holiday season, consider giving StoryWorth as a gift. So to give or get StoryWorth this year, because you've got your own stories too, go to storyworth.com slash tish and you'll get $10 off your first purchase. So that's storyworth.com, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash Tish, that's T-S-H, to receive $10 off. It's really the perfect gift to connect with your loved ones this holiday season, no matter where you are. So for those of us that have not thought about it to the level you have, what do we, what's the solution then? Because I can imagine the vast majority of listeners right now are thinking, okay, but I'm not addicted to classical music. I'm not even addicted to alcohol. <laughs> I might even say I'm not super addicted to phones or whatever it is, but they might be addicted to something else that just feels almost like you can't just throw it away. You know, it's, it's like, it, it, we're not necessarily saying don't pay attention to things, right? Whenever we talk about Twitter disparagingly, because we, we are here for it right. um, when it's in the, when it's put in its right place in our yeah. lives. So, so what's the solution then besides just throwing it all away? Yeah, it's really fascinatingly. Some of the folks out in Silicon Valley have started these things called dopamine fasts. Have you heard of this? Mm-mm. So they'll, they'll um, pick like a week or five days or something. And uh-huh. they'll essentially sit in an austere room with nothing but a computer that's really not connected to the internet. So they can only do their work for the given time Mm. period. They have no caffeine. uh, They eat no food. They do no social media. They have no sex. They do nothing that feels good. And, and and the premise, the idea there is that it sort of regulates the body so that Mm. you can then begin to notice what are the things I miss the most? What are the things that I really feel a draw to? So for some, it may be, oh my gosh, I just realized I can't live without social media. For others, mm-hmm. it'll be like, well, every day at three o'clock, I want a candy bar. And so these mm-hmm. sort of dopamine fasts kind of show them the places where they're overstimulated and allow them to regulate. I think that's a little too much. <laughs> well, and it's also not possible for many of it, us with like kids and jobs. And it's stuff. not. It's totally right. not possible. But what you can do is you can sit down. I, I tell people all the time. Like sit down for 30 minutes. Find if First of all, if you can't find 30 minutes, then you're addicted to busyness. So mm-hmm. there's a thing. Yeah. Find 30 minutes, sit down in the silence and just start making a list and, and even rank it. Like here are the things that I don't think I could live without or here are the things that constantly pull at my attention. And if the thing that constantly pulls at your attention is Twitter or Amazon or booze, like for me, it was gin in the summer and whiskey in the winter. Like if that's constantly pulling at your attention, like if you're thinking about drinking at one good chance that you need to start evaluating your relationship with alcohol. If you're Mm -hmm. thinking about shopping at one in the afternoon, you know, while you're at work and you start cruising, that's probably a good sign. If you can't get Mm -hmm. food out of your mind, if you can't get sex off the mind, I mean, 
whatever it is that just like constantly vies for your attention um, and distracts you from the things that are important. Those are the things that you write down on this list. And then you say, okay, how can I carve out space to either get rid of it per the ignition Mm -hmm. exercises um, or order it in a way that it's only being used to bring me further into relationship with God. Hmm. And I guess when it comes to that, I mean, to me, it sounds like that's for someone who perhaps is on the beginning stages of realizing, whoa, this has a stronghold. It's not a full on someone who needs, you know, to maybe go to a form of rehab for Amazon or whatever. It's, it's somebody who's willing to notice and, and put a guardrail up. So in your experience, Seth, as someone who deals with addiction and someone who's just hyper aware of it, like we all should be, what do you do? Like what, give me boots on the ground, practical stuff you do in your life to make sure things stay in the rightful place. Yeah. First of all, so for me, obviously alcohol is the one that constantly vies for my attention. And I even write about this and I say like, the goal is not to never have another drink again for me. I know that some people it has to be that that for me is a Mm non-starter because then I start thinking, oh gosh, I can never drink again. And then the loops start and all I want to do is go drink. So for me, Mm -hmm. I I have to have different ways of thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that I try to do is just uh, uh, surround myself with people that know my struggle, be clear about the things that I struggle with and tell them too, like, Hey, the goal here for me isn't, to never drink again. But if I'm asking you for a beer, I want you to ask me if I'm okay, because I'm probably not. Mm. Um, And so just building networks of support around you, outing whatever the thing is that sort of vies for your attention, um, and then asking that community of people to hold you accountable. So that's, that's like the primary rhythm piece for me. Um, If I disappear on that group, on that core group of people, they're going to come find me and say like, Hey, are you okay? Um, so, so I think community is a a huge one. Uh, the other is just the spiritual discipline of, uh, carving out time for solitude and silence and being alone and constantly examining like what's going on inside. If I feel drawn to something, what's going on inside that's making me feel drawn to that or, or why can't I settle down long enough to sort of recalibrate? So solitude and silence is a huge one for me. And then I think the third one is just continually participating to the extent that I can um, in the rhythms of the spiritual life through my local faith community um, mm-hmm. so that I'm, I'm trying to be involved in the rhythm of service again, to the extent I can in COVID or be involved in the rhythm of worship to the extent that I can during COVID um, and to just put myself in a position where I'm constantly reminded of the sacramental reality so that I don't sort of fall temptation to my own, uh, you know, or fall to the temptations of my own desires. So to me, examining these number one and number three, feel like they have to do with community. And number two has to do with being okay with being by yourself. Yeah. All of those of which are hard <laughs> because yeah. I think some of the, the things that we, um, our tended our tendency to be addicted to are ways to cope with, um, almost having a, a false sense of that, like, like social media, gives yeah. us a false sense of community yeah. drinking probably gives us a false sense of inner peace or something like that. And to me, it sounds like you're almost saying lean into the, the hard, awkward messiness of all of those things. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, I think that's the way of being human. We, we were yeah. created human to be with other people. We were created human to understand and to know ourselves. We were created human to know God by knowing ourselves and by knowing our community and really all of those, you know, when you're with other people in community and you're celebrating good things, you know, things like food and wine and tea, like our conversation, it's really exciting. It's good stuff. It's stuff that makes you happy, that that brings you joy, that brings connection, right? Like that's really good stuff. Um, Being in solitude with yourself and understanding yourself better. Like when you have those personal breakthroughs about yourself and who you are, that feels really good. Even if it's, I struggle with this thing and I need to go get help. I mean, this is why people love therapy so much. You, you leave therapy and you feel like you know yourself better. And as a result of that, you feel like you can do more, you can overcome more. Um, and so I, I do think that those things are really important because it's really kind of what it means to be human. Right. Right. Yeah. And for me, you know, not, I'm still learning about this about myself. I, you were the one 
you're the friend in my life who is helping me frame these things that we deal with as addiction and not just a vice or not just a, um, you know, a, a problem that we all deal with, but a legit addiction. Yeah. So I'm still, I'm still working through this, but, um, for me, the, probably the, the main key that's been helpful is this idea of having intentional rhythms and routines in my daily life. And not because I'm a disciplined person, actually, because I know I'm not by default if I don't have these things in my life. And so practicing things that I just wake up and have to do almost, um, you know, that idea of we we all make 35,000 decisions a day or something like that, whatever that concept is. Too many. Um, too many decisions a day. <laughs> if we can eliminate having to make those decisions. Yeah. Um, at least a lot of those decisions, then we have more energy and ability to conquer those those decision making times that are more challenging. And so for me, that looks like um, really strong bookends, like for my and specifically in a day, I mean, morning and evening. Yeah. So having a very set habitual morning routine and a habitual evening routine to start and end my days, not saying it's like the panacea to make everything OK, but there's something about the idea of having those things being really sturdy and without needing to make any choices that may, that almost makes me feel a little bit like, okay, the middle of the day, I can at least um, have a little bit more energy and uh, brain space to deal with. So that looks like doing the same for me, the same five things every morning um, for just because not because they're sacred and not because they can't ever be budged, but because they, that just works for me. And so, you know, for everybody, it, it might be different. But for me, that looks like, you know, coffee that looks like uh, writing down my to do list that looks like uh, Lectio Divina, that looks like 10 minutes of yoga, and it looks like walking the dog. Yeah. So it's just yeah. these five things that are so boring, really, and truly, they're not that I say boring in that, like, I didn't invent them. Yeah. Um, and then the same kind of idea in the evening, there's something about that that just grounds me to making me feel like I'm a person. I mean, this is, I mean, the the classic idea of sacramental living, right? The idea of all these little parts of my life um, are infused with the goodness of God when I choose to let things like brewing the coffee be infused with the goodness of God. And it gives me, I don't know, just a little bit more of a chance to not deal with the things that are hard in the middle of the day. Yeah, I think you're the I think you're the one that actually told me about James Clear's book, Atomic Habits. Um, <laughs> that book was so helpful to me and it sort of changed a lot of the the way that I approach my life too. I I wouldn't say I'm an undisciplined person at all, but mm -hmm. but I wouldn't say that I am a rhythmic, necessarily a rhythmic person either. And that's one of the things that I've always kind of appreciated about uh, you is that you've always been so good at expressing how important the rhythms are to you and, and like casting a vision for those rhythms. And I think that those rhythms really do keep us from falling into these like accidental addictions, you know, like if you have somewhere you're supposed to be and something you're supposed to be doing, that sort of removes, like you said, the choice for addiction. I mean, is that kind of, I think that's what you're saying. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And you know, it, that's what it looks like on a macro level you know, when we're talking daily, but if you zoom out, it's even what the liturgical calendar is about in some ways, you know, not saying that by, by following the liturgical calendar, you will not be tempted to be right. something, right. but there is something I think God given in us to lean into rhythms. We, we are a people that, you know, we have circadian rhythms. We yeah. have seasonal rhythms collectively, yep. you know, when it comes to the harvest seasons, yeah. um, and so we like rhythms and so rhythms are good for us just because that's how God made us. And so to me, it feels like we're just being more of who we're made to be when we invite rhythms into our lives that work well for us and, and keep them healthy, you know, not, not veering into legalism, but, but um, I mean, just providing that scaffolding we need to mark our time. Um, like we talked about last time with Advent yeah. Um, and then the the other thing I think is helpful is, and I talk a little bit about this in At Home in the World, the book I wrote about travel, that um, there's a Benedictine vow that, um, you know, there, there's three main vows that most monastic traditions take, but the Benedicts, the Benedictines take one more vow, and it's the vow of staying put. Yeah. Um, it's the vow of stability, actually. 
Um, but the vow stability talks about basically staying put, even when things are hard and more importantly in our era, when things are boring. Yeah. Um, and so Kyle and I made this unofficial vow really, when we moved to the small town that we're going to take the vow stability that we can be addicted to, to novelty and want to just escape to the next thing. And, you know, that's, we we can do that by way of travel, but really we can do that by way of all sorts of things. And the, and staying put is that idea of leaning into the boredom and leading into the hard and not trying to chase it away with some form of, um, you know, whatever our drug of choices. And um, I think the Benedictines have, have a, um, I don't know, they're smart to make a whole vow about that because I don't think it's our human tendency to want that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You were the first person that I ever heard say, the vow of staying put. And it's kind of always, uh, it's always stuck with me. And I think that really is the goal. Like if you can stay put in your community, stay put um, within yourself, even, you know, don't, don't veer off too much into your own internal chaos and um, stay put with your immediate friend circles. And, and man, I don't know, there's something about that, that vow of stability that really, if you could just run your whole life through that vow of stability, I think it would change probably a lot of what we do. I think we need to have like a whole episode about just the vow of staying put because I yeah. think that's so hard for us in our world. Um, even if geographically we don't move, we don't stay put very well. Yeah. You'll have to let yeah. me know when we do that and I'll interview you that whole episode because I'm not <laughs> super good at staying put, as you know. Well, I'm not either. And, you know, Kyle and I have to remind us of this geographically anyway, in like July, August, when we are here and we question our sanity, why we left Oregon. Yeah. Um, and that speaks into why taking a vow is important. It's not because you're great at it. It's because you yeah. absolutely need it. You know, we're not any good at it, really. So, vows well, I mean, good. what's uh, the question that I have for you is what circle of hell did you move into in it, July it, and August? Speaking of Dante, because wow, it gets hot down there. It really does. Yeah. Right now, I mean, apropos of nothing, I'm having the kids, my students, um, draw Dante's circles of hell in 2020 and um, on the wall. <laughs> Like figured, you know, why not for the holidays? Let's decorate the classroom with <laughs> with um, Christmas lights and, and images of hell. And so they've turned it into a shopping mall. So they've created these levels huh. of a shopping mall. Like Limbo is a um, parking lot um, with no spots and everyone's just like wandering around aimlessly. Although, I mean, it's so smart. But um, anyway, I think of that a lot. Like what is what does Inferno look like in this day and age? And and we've all agreed that like it's gotta be the eighth or ninth circle of hell, uh, Texas in August. So Yeah, I yeah. think that's probably that sounds right to me. <laughs> it does. Okay. Well, it's now time in our chat to talk about one thing or habit or idea or work of art that is currently making our lives a little bit better because we're all about the little things here. And um, we've also paired our drinking somewhat with our choices. So, Seth, why don't you tell us, first off, what is currently making your life a little bit better? Yes. So I created in October this uh, values checklist. So I have Mm -hmm. a few values that I try to order my life by. So it's faith, family, uh, health, creativity, and work. Um, Also, I have another category that's like thinking, thinking in an election, like how much time am I spending allowing myself to have some thinking time because I need that for my life. That is a classic ordered. five category. I, love it. <laughs> I can't, I'm sorry. I, I come by it honest, but um, yeah. So I have all of the, I have yes. these, these, these different charts and then I have different things within the charts and I just mark, you know, some of these things I want to do daily. Some of these things I try to do uh, weekly and some of them are really just monthly, but I just want to make sure that, that I'm taking care of it. So um, that chart is making my uh, life a little bit better. It makes me a little more sane. It makes me a little less tempted to go get slobber knocked on uh, the bourbons, which is why it pairs well with a gentleman in a scholar tea. Mm-hmm. And it pairs well with this conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I hope so. I mean, th- these are the things like to me, again, not being a very good rhythmic person, I just want to mm-hmm. make sure that I've got something to kind of hold me accountable to the rhythms. Now that said, I haven't created the November charts yet. I just have kept going at the end of October. So I'm, I'm actually a little bit behind on November. Okay. Well, when you get them all up to speed, you talk about maybe 
you could share the template for those of us who are curious because you made this on Google Sheets, right? Yeah, I did. And I would love to share the template. I'll share my template, but then everybody, because you have different values, you would just put whatever, you know, your particular value is at the top and then have little subcategories that you want to check, you know, sort of check and track along the way. Yeah, really cool. So, yeah, yeah. so show notes for people. So what is a piece of art or a habit Mm -hmm. or something that's making your life a little bit better? Um, Right now, and even now, literally, not just when this episode goes out, but now, um, for me, the Advent playlist I created to go to pair with my book, Shadow and Light, um, is on repeat in our house already. And part of it is because, boy, if we need an extended holiday season of all years, I think 2020 is it. Yes. And to me, I have no shame in playing music, but also because I really like this particular playlist, if I say so myself, because it's not Christmas carols. This is particularly Advent music. It's Advent specific because, as we know, Advent is about waiting and anticipation and expectation. And so I purposely picked songs that aren't about... um, Yay, Jesus is born. It, it They're about what it looks like to sit in the discomfort of things. And so I thought this is probably a good um, work of art that pairs with addiction because a lot of addiction is about not being comfortable with waiting or not being comfortable in the messy middle of life. And that is also Advent in a way, right? I mean, Advent is about um, wondering if what God has promised will come to fruition. Yeah. Both, both 2000 years ago, but even now when we kind of wait for the world to be made right. Um, and so a lot of the music here has been really good for me for 2020 because um, it's easy to look around and wonder what the heck is going on. Um, so there's a lot of artists I love on here. There's a lot of old music I love on here, which I think is really great because it tells me nothing new is under the sun. Um, People have been wondering this kind of stuff for a long time. Um, In particular, artists on here that I'm really grateful for are are, um, a band called Ordinary Time, um, All Sons and Daughters and The Brilliance, and also Andrew Peterson. He he shows up a couple times in this, but it's a really good playlist um, for those of us who just feel that like, I just want to sit with art that understands what it feels like to be uncomfortable. Yeah. Hey, so is there a track on there that's kind of unexpected? I'm looking at it right now. You know, there's a number of tracks that people would say that's not Advent. Um, I'm looking, I've got Leslie Odom Jr. on there, but um, in terms of a particular song, um, I'm going to say Kyrie is one by Cardiphonia that maybe doesn't feel, um, you know, kind of a theme that I, I recirculate in shadow and light is this idea of like, why is the world all messed up? Yeah. And I want to lean into that instead of uh, let's just pretend it all away because it's the holidays. And so to me, Kyrie, um, that kind of call out to God, (laughs) like have mercy. Mm -hmm. Um, that song's been on repeat a lot. Um, let all mortal flesh keep silence. It's on there. What a song. Yeah, that's when I, I've got on repeat a lot because, yeah, I mean, self-explanatory in a way. So, yeah. I mean, I'll put it in the show notes if anyone's curious. Um, these songs have really been, really been good for me. Heaven Meets Earth, um, a lot of good stuff. But there's no Beyonce on it or Jay-Z. No Beyonce. Uh-huh. We've got Leslie Odom Jr., but the rest of them are kind of um, little known musicians, which I tend to like. Um, sorry, of course but, you do. <laughs> of course I do. I'm a little bit uh, expected in that way. <laughs> Hi, Tish. This is Carol White from Richmond, Virginia. One of the practices that has made my good list in 2020 is what I call monthly musing. On the first three days of each month during my early morning rituals, I create a page for that upcoming month that includes context and experiences that I am anticipating. I use a spiral-bound notebook with grid paper since I have a particular affinity for lettering and drawing on grid paper, but a blank sketch pad would work just as well. In the center of the page, I start by lettering the month's name, and then over those three mornings, I note a smattering of realities and or perspectives that I am anticipating this new month will hold. 
It's somewhat of a mind map that is my way of inaugurating the new month and mindfully welcoming what the days may hold. Side note, I keep a variety of markers and pens within reach to add simple drawings and designs since it's always more fun to live life in color. Looking back through my monthly pages, here are some snippets I lettered for the month of April 2020, which gives a nod to my role as both an ER nurse and an instructor for student nurses. Sheltering at home, creative connections, buds and blooms, purposeful podcast listening, hashtag loyal to local, final weeks of this semester gone virtual, COVID-19 clouds, all the PPE, amped up self-care, etc. I think you get the idea. Not only is this practice a creative outlet, but on a deeper level, it has honestly become an anchor of hopeful expectancy for me towards a month that could be met with dread and anxiety with all that's occurring in our world today. Thank you, Tish, for how intentionally you flesh out your passions. Your podcasting and writing make an impact on me and countless others, so carry on with your whole heart. Well, thank you so much to Carol for sharing with us what's on your good list. And I would love to hear from you as well. So call and leave us a short voicemail at 401-684-GOOD telling us, a habit, idea, thing, or work of art that's making your life better these days. You can find all my work at tishoxenwriter.com, or you'll find links to things like my audio series about creating a rule of life, my weekly newsletter called Five Quick Things, and my books, including my new book on Advent called Shadow and Light. It's not too late to get it, even though Advent has already started. You can join in whenever you need to. And if you go to shadowandlightadvent.com or just my tishoxenwriter.com, website, you'll see the book there, a link to join a community and all the extras like the music I was just talking about. So Seth, where can we all find you? You can find my books wherever fine books are sold, including (laughs) those places online. Um, You can find my writing at sethhaines.com and anywhere that a hashtag is involved, I am at Seth Haynes, H-A-I-N-E-S. Very good. All right. And music for the show is by Kevin McLeod. And thanks as always to Caroline Tissell and Kyle Oxenreiter for their help, as well as my furry intern, Jenny. I'm Tish Oxenreiter and Seth and I will be back here with you again. Thanks for listening to The Good List. And Seth, thanks again for joining me. Thanks for having me. It was a blast as usual. <laughs>